0: Look at, we were just commenting on Edwin's incredible background.
1: I mean, it all—it's all led to this: a wall-sized poster of *The Hangover*. Edwin, I don't want this to happen. But if you pass away, I'm gonna wrap you in that *Hangover* banner, <laughs> and uh, we're all gonna be there, and we'll show *Heaven's Gate* in your honor
2: we're not gonna like fold it like triangle fold it on top of his casket <laughs> no, no
1: not military style <laughs> viking style we're gonna wrap him in it
2: fire arrows at it
1: we're gonna <laughs> hey, man.
2: that poster so big it looks like in super mario 64 that you could like jump into it and go into a hangover world <laughs>
1: Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 80, our penultimate pieces of cinema. Although, who knows? You never know. We may be back with more. But today, we're talking about acting. And first off, I want to welcome our special guest, actor Lisey Metcalf. Give it up for Lisey Metcalf. Yay! It's me. Lisey is the star of filmmaker Daniel Ott's apartment story which you'll be seeing shortly at festivals, and comes to many Secret Movie Club events. Lisey, it's wonderful to have you. Thank
3: you. I'm so happy to be here. It's so exciting. She also
0: illustrated our Paddington and Hunt for the Wilder People original posters.
1: Polyglot, Lisey Metcalf, actor, writer, illustrator, designer, connoisseur. She's part of two of our Radio Hour episodes
3: last year. (laughs) I forgot
1: about that. So we've been going sort of position by position in... The team that you need to make a great movie, and I suppose interestingly implicit in what we're doing is the thesis that, and listen, I'm very director-centric, but implicit in the thesis is that to make a great movie, it takes a lot of people, and uh, we have been building up to acting and directing, and today we are going to be talking
2: about acting. But who else is with us today?
4: Hey, it's Daniel.
2: Hey, it's me, Conor Lloyd-Cruz, the People's
4: Champion. Hello, America. I just want to go to sleep. How can you go to sleep
1: with that wall-sized hangover poster behind you Craig, in your room?
4: I did four—no, yeah, three screenings last night. I'm tired and have to go to work at 6. I want to sleep, Craig. I want to sleep. Ever buoyant, always positive,
1: perpetual optimist, Edward Cesar Gomez is with us. And I'm Craig, founder, programmer, Secret Movie Club. It's wonderful to have you with us today. Great to be here. So this Friday, when you hear this podcast, uh, we are going to be playing my personal favorite Ang Lee movie, The Ice Storm, made in 1997 on 35mm. If you've never seen this movie, and you're like, why do you program it in November? It actually takes place all across Thanksgiving weekend. I think it may have my favorite Kevin Kline performance uh, Sigourney Weaver is incredible Joan Allen's incredible You've got Toby Maguire, Elijah Wood a Young Katie Holmes, Christina Rishi And it's devastating I, I cry a lot in movies So I don't know that this is any kind of advertisement for this But I always cry for the last five minutes of this film I just think one of the best endings uh, Incredibly emotional And if you're obsessed with family as I am Then this is your jam And then on Saturday We are doing a 35mm double bill Of two of my favorite American movies of all time Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter and Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, both on 35mm at the Million Dollar Theater. And, spoiler, that'll be what we talk about next week for Secret Movie Club Podcast 81. And then on Monday,
4: what's happening Monday, Edwin? Monday's a special day because I'm turning to the number 23. And on Monday, I program one of the greatest, most badass 80s action movies of all time, Chuck Norris's. Invasion, USA. And... It's right in time for the Christmas season. So technically, it's a Christmas movie. And they blow up everything. The, the, the communist,
1: godless Cubans blow up everything Christian and Christmas in that movie just so Chuck Norris lets you know who the bad guys are as he wears all denim. Chuck Norris <laughs> is trying to save Christmas for the terrorists.
3: For your birthday, Edwin, can you give me a framed picture of you to hang on my wall?
1: <laughs> we should do that. That's such a great idea, Lisey. We should just <laughs> have Edwin sign 100 headshots.
2: No, we need to get a picture of him dressed up in a suit to hang up at Secret Movie Club, like the picture of the President, that's like in. Oh in yeah, nice.
1: <laughs> Like every post office has uh, Joe Biden right now and Kamala Harris. It's Edwin, but who's Edwin's vice president?
2: It's aw- it's Edwin, but tr- standing the other direction. <laughs> 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 I love
1: it. And then. Wednesday of next week, before we get totally off track, we are doing a Rainer Werner Fassbinder's Corel, a movie that really divides even Fassbinder fans. It was the very last movie that he made. He died six weeks before it opened. It signaled a direction he might have gone into had he let, lived another few years. It is a crazy adaptation of French novelist Jean Genet's movie, or novel, I'm sorry, Corel, I think of The Port. It has a longer name, but it stars Brad Davis. It was all shot on a stage. It is a very very daring LGBTQ film But it also has very transgressive themes It's not for everybody But I do really like it I love everything Fassbender did And I do really like Corel So if you want to see the very last film that he did And you want to see what transgressive cinema looks like It looks like Corel And then next Thursday On 35mm Probably the more palatable John Cassavetes We're doing We showed Husbands a few days ago We had three walkouts Just because people were like These men are abominations and they're drunk the whole movie I tried to warn people I guess some people Still didn't know What they were in for With husbands But we're showing Minnie and Moskowitz, Which is a totally Different gear It's a romantic comedy Jenna Rollins And Seymour Moskowitz. Jenna is uh, Uptight Type A Independent woman Seymour Cassell Is freewheeling Hippie Parking attendant Moskowitz. They meet They fall in love I love it It it, it is I think One of Cassavetti's Great movies And as always You can write us At at community At secretmovieclub.com Go to secretmovieclub Our entire November, December has been announced All the way through our annual Christmas Eve It's a Wonderful Life 35mm screening Uh, Many things coming up And I hope you will join us But we'll talk about that another time Because I want to get to this Today we're talking about acting Orson Welles famously said, if you've ever read, and I encourage people to read it, the book of interviews he did with Peter Bogdanovich, Peter Bogdanovich asked him a question once, and I wish I could remember the exact context, but the gist of it was, who do you think are the underrated contributors to cinema? And who do you think are the overrated? And Orson Wells fascinatingly said, actors are the most underrated. Directors are the most overrated. And Peter Bogdanovich was kind of thrown for a loop. And Orson Wells explained, he said, this is what I mean. Actors are, they're the first face that the public thinks about when they think about movies. They might not know the director, they might not know anyone else, but if you're an actor, you can't hide behind anything. You are the life and soul and windows of the soul to the movie. And he said that actors often Carry films contribute as writers give all this life to film, and even though you know people worship actors and adore actors and actors can become sort of American gods in a way. Orson Welles was just saying their contribution and the risk that they take in putting trust in the writers and the directors unless you 're an actor, you don't understand what a, a live wire tightrope walk it is, and he said directors are the most overrated because. You can have no technical expertise whatsoever, and you can be a director. He said cinematographer has to know how to light, a production designer has to know how to design, an actor has to know how to act. Now, you know, he went on, of course, you can have celebrity actors and yada, yada, but, but a director could sit in the chair and not know what the
2: hell they're doing, and all the other contributors could make them look good. Seth Rogen told a story about that once, where he said that directing was just somebody would come up to you with like a green tie and a blue tie and say, which one do you want? And he'd go, that one. And that's what most of his experience of directing was.
1: But Orson Welles then went on, lest people be like, what? Orson Welles then went on to say, though, that being said, his favorite movies were the strong director movies and that the strong director movies tend to be the best movies. But he said that the truly great directors are far fewer than people think. But anyway, Lisey, let's just, you're an actor. That is your career. And, you know, you have firsthand experience of this. What do you think the role of the actor is in making a great movie?
3: In a way, it's to make everyone else look good kind of like you said about how it's like the first face it's the role of just being there for like the audience to project onto you and giving a story a place kind of within yourself and then letting that be seen for other people and it definitely is like you were saying it's it's the first face that you see and If people don't like a movie it is always the actors fault and if they don't like your character on a TV show the actor is the bad person as well like you're a villain and you do something bad like every teenager has it out for you hoping that you choke because you did this thing on your television show but yeah I I think it's the role of an actor is literally just be present be there let people have the outlines of a story so they can fill in the rest of the pieces
1: i'm a writer director and i do think about this a lot which is i feel something that directors who are not totally looped in understand is that an actor has to trust your vision if you're asking an actor to do nudity if you're asking an actor to play a really controversial scene whatever it is if you're asking an actor to you know be part of a screenplay that everyone who reads it is like, this is a great screenplay, but this is going to cause some noise. You've got to gain actors' trust, because as you were just saying, they're not going to see the director in the scene. The audience doesn't see the director in the scene, unless they're aware what a director does stylistically. But they see the actors. What do you think producers and directors should do to really gain the trust and the buy-in of the actors so that the actors can give their best? and feel that they're being protected.
3: I've heard so many horror stories of people who've been asked to do things and then they've either said no or I'm not sure, and then they're basically forced into doing it. Like in my history with acting and filmmaking and stuff like that, Whenever I'm on set and the person just like comes up to me and has like a real conversation instead of like a rush, let's get this through. Like we have this amount of time to do this. And normally I think you have table reads or rehearsals or something to kind of give a backbone to, I guess, yourself to be like, okay, this is what I have to do. This is what I want to do. And I know that this is going to be okay because I have like a good feeling about this person because I really do think that you have to go off of just like vibes a little bit. And I think the best characters and roles and like actors in a part are the ones who are like friends with the director or like closer to the director Or just like one that was like, yeah, I spent months and months and months talking to so-and-so so so we can get this through.
2: I was literally going to bring that up, Lisi, that as someone who has, you know, a limited experience as well writing and directing things. I've always liked working with people who are friends of mine who I'm close to more than people who I don't know who might be like, quote-unquote, better. I'd rather work with somebody who's maybe not seen as good of an actor but who I'm close with because you just have that, I think, baked-in trust and kind of allegiance almost to each other and kindness.
3: Yeah, because like no one's going to want to work with you if you're mean. Unless you're like super famous, then it doesn't matter anymore for some reason. But that's what I was always told starting out when I was like a young teenager. Uh, They always said to be nice, be someone that people want to work with, and don't be a jerk. I couldn't think of a word that wasn't a curse word for that. So jerk, because people aren't going to want to work with you, and you're not going to get that part, and then you're just like
0: screwed. I'm on a similar page to Lacey. Um,
2: I disagree with everything she said, so. <laughs>
0: it's, it's, but it's the concept. I think when you when you're directing something, you have this you have a relationship with sort of an entire production that's sort of unique to that type of thing, and especially with an actor, there's a, a give and take that you have to find and the worst thing to do always bring it back to in film school at my film school all directors were required to take acting courses built for directors and it was all about this concept to is to direct well you need to understand an actor's process and every actor will have a different process and the way that they get in character and the way that they find the way to to give themselves to create the the scene for themselves and it was really challenging because a lot of these people are introverts or it's just not it's out of their comfort level But it's this really particular relationship within acting, because I think it's very easy, as Lisey put it, it's very easy to put the blame of something on an actor. But the actor's decision making is their own, but it is also paired with the vision of the movie. So you have, I think, very infamously, maybe Hayden Christensen in the Star Wars prequels has been panned for his acting abilities. But all of the decision making of that was direction and it was in writing. And we've seen from his other work that he's a very capable actor with a lot of different range. It seems like actors sort of get almost punished when a role is received that way, as if it was strictly their own decisions that did that, versus talking more about the collaborative process of it. Because the collaboration of of an actor is not only with the creative people behind the camera, but with everyone they share a scene with. Even things like the production designer, because the, the space... Allows for how they can portray something. Every decision has to factor into them. So they're having to create a character and live out this moment on their own while also having to react to everything that's been built around there for them to react to. And it, I think it's really difficult. I think it's very easy to be like actors, this and that. But it's if you've ever tried anything remotely that isn't a funny sketch with friends, it's an incredibly taxing and I assume enjoy, maybe enjoyable thing, but also like a very... I think sometimes underrepresented in its difficulty skill set because the brain you need to have on to do it is difficult because you have to you have to go beyond you. It is like a weird,
3: wild thing. It's definitely emotionally taxing.
2: In LA, everybody's gonna have like a favorite writer or director, but if you went out into my or Daniel's hometowns, people wouldn't have that. But if you asked them who their favorite or least favorite actor was, they would one hundred percent have an answer to the degree that i believe in karma and like psychic energy that comes from people actors get so much negative psychic energy because some dad somewhere has just decided they really hate this person because they saw them in one thing once and they were kind of bug-eyed and they were like "Uh, i don't know about this it's interesting i've probably to be fair it's mostly been in kind of sketchy stuff sketchy not in the um like negative sense, but in like sketch comedy sense stuff directed by friends. I actually have done a decent amount of acting, improv acting, but that's, I guess, kind of a different thing to a certain degree. I guess it's different form of it than sort of truly like getting into a character and super hyper emotionally invested. I guess it can kind of overlap as well. My experience of all that stuff has always just been, it's really, it's a lot of fun to do, but there is also that vulnerable feeling because then when it gets posted online, you're the one in it. (laughs) And when people talk trash about what's going on in it. I guess my whole thesis is we should just be nicer to actors, I
3: think. No, you can be mean to them. I am a little bit known for having a really hard time not with actors that I work with but just like every time I go to LA and I meet someone in like a coffee shop let's say there'll be an actor and they're always mean to me and I'm like please stop you can be mean to them yell at them yell at me I hate me never mind
2: I I retract everything
0: I've said thank you well and to backtrack to something that Connor saying that's interesting is that improv and like comedy styling things is a very different thing But we've also had this influx of people like Adam Sandler, Jim Carrey, who come from that type of background who deliver these insane dramatic performances that there's like something at work. I think even when you're crossing the different boundaries of what types of acting you're into, tapping into an emotional thing, I think is a core of acting through line. Even if you're being funny, you're having to pull from something to keep that up.
3: Yeah, especially if like you could have to be funny, but what if... I had an instance where I had to be doing comedy scenes, but my dog had died the day before and I was not doing well. I was not okay. Or I did one of the radio hours, I did Daniel's radio hour, and I had gotten broken up with, like five hours before and Daniel had seen me and I just sobbed the whole day I was literally just like sobbing and shaking and then I just was like okay we just have to do this and I just like stood and I was like okay if you can get through this hour it will be fine and So I think like, even if it's comedy, sometimes you have a bad day and you have to force through it anyway, and that's emotionally taxing in its own way, and it's just as much talent as you need for anything else.
2: And actually, with comedy, the worst thing you can be is just trying to be funny. Oh, so true. The best thing you can be is to have an emotion and to follow that through. The the thing I did the most, I was just thinking about that in my own context, was this show called Benford Time with Robert Benford, where I played the quote-unquote producer of the show, but I was really the musician. And... I did actually play that from an emotional point of view, which is that I sort of hated being there and wanted to ruin the show as much as I could. I think that was funny. Some people seem to enjoy when it. When you
3: said that the worst thing that you can do is try to be funny, every high school improv troupe is just shaking now and
0: crying. <laughs> the one-star iTunes review is coming <laughs> I mean, What are your thoughts on acting?
4: Uh, you know, to get the show together, man. A good example of acting, I think Daniel said it, Jim Carrey. He's known as a comedic actor. And when he did the Truman Show, Man on the Moon, Cable Guy, and Eternal Mind, those are all like serious performances that he took on because he was known to be funny. And a comedic actor turning to a serious role is interesting. And a prime example, Man on the Moon, he took method acting really seriously. And there's even a documentary about it how he embraced a character of uh, Andy Kaufman. One could say too seriously. He took it really far, and um, and obviously it's one of his greatest performances he's ever done, and I love Man on the Moon, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time.
3: I think the best thing anyone's ever told me that has helped me a lot, I was told by someone to be funny in your dramatic roles and be serious in your comedic roles, so to like play them opposite. and. I think that helped me a lot, like even when Daniel and I were filming something together, it was like the serious, heartbreaking moments and stuff like that, and then trying to like make it lighter makes like it very humanizing and also very, very sad, made me really sad watching it afterwards, and I hate watching myself, by the way.
1: I'm a huge, huge fan of Gene Hackman, and one of my it's not a regret. I, I wish I could think of the better word for it. But it's something that I, I sense. It's like Michael Caine, too, is I sense that if I'm lucky enough to make feature films, I mean, Hackman said he's retired. So is that I'm not going to be able to work with these people that I so want to work with. But Gene Hackman, you know, from the very first performance that people really took note of, which was his role as the brother and Bonnie and Clyde, even when he's in a bad movie. He, he's fascinating to watch. You know, I heard him. And if anyone wants to listen, there's a great NPR interview with Terry Gross where he's a little more unguarded than he normally is. Hackman notoriously hated directors, hated working with directors, respected only a few. His dad abandoned him when he was 14 years old. And Hackman has this story of just seeing his dad in a pickup truck, literally kind of being like, take care. And he didn't know what was going on at the time. He never saw his dad again. So Hackman, add, like Brando, too, had an issue with uh, father figures. And so, you know, the directors, he was always at their throats, except for a few. But Terry Gross asked Gene Hackman once, hey, you know, in French Connection 2 – they make you a junkie and, and you're going through withdrawal. And I really felt you were going through withdrawal. Like, how did you do that? And Hackman was like, oh, and he felt almost embarrassed. And he said, well, so what, what you have to do is you have to figure out when was a time that I was really in excruciating pain that made me really embarrassed at the same time. And he said, I had a motorcycle accident and I really jacked up my back. And so what I was doing when I was going through withdrawal was I was just connecting to how I felt with that, my back issues. I was channeling that. And I think the thing about Hackman that's interesting to me is that Hackman normally isn't one who totally disappears into his roles. You sort of always sense that he's tapping into something very personal. He's doing that sort of thing of like, how do I as Gene Hackman, how would I be if I was like this? If I was Gene Hackman, how I would be like that? You know, like, for instance, one of my favorite performances of his is in Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, where he plays just a sadistic sheriff. And he said that Eastwood's only bit of direction to him was playing like LAPD. Chief Daryl Gates And so (laughs) Hackman was like Okay So he watched A bunch of footage Of Daryl Gates And then he said What you have to do Is say If I were sadistic if I were in a position of power, if this is what I would do, how would I do it? And then that's what he did, and you're, I'm just transfixed by him. My favorite Hackman performance, and weirdly I feel it's a bit of an atypical Hackman performance, is his performance in Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. And when you watch Gene Hackman in The Conversation, he's playing this very introverted, nebbish, I don't want to share anything with anybody, Harry Call, this, this guy who records people, he's a he's a sound specialist. And Hackman. Said, Said that and He came up with this overcoat That he'd wear the whole movie And Hackman felt that in a weird way That overcoat for Harry would protect him He felt weirdly it gave him a sense of protection That people couldn't really know who he was That wasn't really there And weirdly I've heard that Hackman in real life Can be very, as many of the greats are Very shy actually And that acting for him is a release So I wonder weirdly if some of the things You see him in the conversation May be truer how Hackman really is than some of the louder, bigger performances but I think Hackman is one of the great actors and if you can catch a great Hackman performance I think it's always
4: a masterclass and in just tremendous acting you know what? Roy Scheider my favorite Roy Scheider movie, and I mentioned this a lot and I try to post it a lot but you let me down Craig and that movie is Blue Thunder I've seen Blue Thunder so many times, I know it by heart it's incredibly done and I yeah, yeah, Roy Scheider's known for jaws. Yeah, but he also did all that jazz. I think Scheider's a great call.
2: Naked lunch.
4: Yeah, I know, I know. I, I I respect your all that jazz, but me it's Blue Thunder. He plays a, like a veteran, uh helicopter pilot who is just you know, trying to you know, go through his his thing, you know, he has like some kind of anxiety thing when he gets, has a stopwatch to make sure Everything's there, and uh, it's just a great performance he does. It's also a great LA movie. So watch uh, Roy Scheider's Blue Thunder, and also um, there's another one he did, uh, The Fourth War, where he just becomes Rambo and it goes up against a Russian dude. That's a pretty good performance too.
2: Two actors I really like right now, in terms of men, I think my favorite actor at the moment is Mass Mikkelsen. I think he's fascinating in everything he's in. Him as Hannibal in the Hannibal show is so good that when I think of the character Hannibal, I think of him now and not Anthony Hopkins. And then in terms of, of women, and I'm going to mispronounce her last name, Riley Co. Is it just Co? But she's been killing it. She was great in Zola. She was great in The Lodge last year, and i have been really liking a lot of the stuff that she's been in.
1: She's great in The House that Jack built.
2: But something that I'm always impressed with, and it's a very showy thing, and I think some people would dismiss when, like, performances are very showy. I'm okay when performances are very showy. I think that can be fun, and that's its own thing. And I think dual roles— are always interesting. Some of my favorites, I love Sam Rockwell and Moon. It's not exactly the same thing, but I kind of really genuinely love what James McAvoy's doing in Split. Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers. That was one I was going to bring up. That's my favorite one. And this is something we had talked about, Craig. Lindsay
3: Lohan and Freaky Friday. Or
2: I Know Who Killed Me. In Dead Ringers, Jeremy Irons plays twins, twin gynecologists. And at different points, they will impersonate each other. And he's so good in it that without the movie ever indicating, just by his performance, by the end of the movie, you can always tell which twin he's playing, even when the twin is pretending to be the other twin. And I don't really know exactly how you pull that off. It's something to do with, I guess, the way he's holding himself and the two different performances. That's why I mentioned James McAvoy as well, because I think in Split, there's moments in that movie where you can tell which alter personality he's supposed to play before he even says anything just by the way he like colds himself and i think that that's fascinating anne
3: hathaway has been my favorite actress since i was four years old my parents in 2001 took me to the el capitan theater in hollywood on july something to watch the premiere of princess diaries and they had all the princesses there and they signed my little autograph book And I was very happy. So I've been a huge fan of hers ever since. Rachel getting married, I think, is the most beautiful performance. I literally fell off my chair when she won an Oscar. I'm in love with her, obsessed with her, everything.
1: Where do you fall with Serenity?
3: Let's not talk about it, okay?
2: I sat in the theater with you. I'm not going to spoil Serenity for anybody who hasn't seen it. But I was sitting next to you and Casey... And I was essentially the one who brought you guys there. You were. I felt you guys so mad at me when the things (laughs) towards the middle of that movie started happening. But
3: the person I want to talk about is Kristen Stewart. Because going back to our conversation about, like, when people hate an actor or, like, a movie or something, they hate the actor. And I think she really got caught up in that when Twilight came out and everyone was like, ah, Twilight. And, like, which, by the way, are wonderful movies and I love watching them. They're very fun. But... Twilight came out and people would like make fun of her all the time and she does have like a very specific way of like holding herself and doing things but also like you have to consider the writing maybe and that not that I'm going to say anything negative about anyone or like the directing and stuff like that is all going to lead to a certain type of acting but if you look back at her history like she was in panic room in 2002 and was so good like she was 12 i think and just like really really talented and she was in into the woods and or not into the woods into the wild (laughs) two very different movies but into the wild and was just so talented and you could see how good she is and how much like promise that she has even back then and i think people was like oh my god that girl from twilight and then just never paid attention to any of these amazing performances that she's done since like even in charlie's angels She's so funny. Like, she is such a funny person and is very good at comedy, like American Ultra and things like that. And she just genuinely has so many different facets of her that she can put into different roles. And I saw Spencer yesterday, and it was the best day of my life. And she was amazing. And if she doesn't win an Oscar, I will personally riot.
0: And she was there.
3: And she was there. Kristen Stewart, I am so, if you're listening to this, I know you aren't, but if you are, I'm so happy about your engagement and that you're happy. But if anything happens, <laughs> just know I am here. I'm available. I could be at the altar with my spouse to be, and I would leave them for you. Um, just had to put that out there into the world. Okay, that was my take on Kristen Stewart. <laughs> uh, I was
0: making a list of like some current people that I really admire and enjoy watching. I think Issa Rae from Insecure on HBO is like really a force from like a writing and uh, acting standpoint. I think Stephen Yun, who was in uh, Minari this year last year and Okja, and I think got his sort of his initial acclaim from The Walking Dead, which I, I didn't watch, but oh, and Burning, great in Burning. I think he's pretty incredible. Song Kang Ho from Parasite. If you have any familiarity with like South Korean cinema, he is like he seems to be in every great movie. He's Snowpiercer, Memories of Murder, The Host, uh, Thirst, JSA, Secret Sunshine. It's his his record is insane. He's
3: a god, and I'm in love with him. I've been talking
0: about this for a few years, especially with with Lisey, But I think Florence Pugh is someone. I think with Black Widow being a huge hit this year from a mainstream perspective, she is unbelievable she really elevates everything she touches uh, from, from Midsommar to Little Women which is maybe like a perfect little film she's really incredible but my big one that is still modern but I think is from older is Tim Blake Nelson everything this man gets to be in is better for it he was in Watchmen from a few years ago and he's just this little chameleon and I don't know how he does it but he is the most engaging presence and I think a lot back to A Brother Where Art Thou which is a stacked cast of great people doing what they're great at Because you can sort of, every time you watch that movie, pick someone new to just watch. But especially Tim Blake Nelson, if you just watch him in the background of every scene of that movie, he is making a decision for every moment that action has been called. Tim Blake Nelson is doing something in character. And it's the funniest movie happening behind a funny movie. I think a lot about the scene in A Brother Out There where he's holding the pig in the backseat of the car. And the camera's in the front with John Turturro and George Clooney. But the image of him flailing with this pig has lived in my brain for years. And I think his performance there is outstanding. I think he's kind of the unsung hero. I mean, Holly Hunter's in it too. So you should probably just include Holly Hunter as like queen of that realm. Is Oh, Adam Driver. Jesus, Adam Driver. Oh
3: my God. Yeah, there literally. Is no, there is
0: no better actor right now than Adam Driver.
3: I would maybe be like a little little bye if it came to Adam Driver.
0: I think he could palm my top of my head and pick me up off the ground.
3: I'd be so happy if he did that. I just like really want to hold his hand just once. Just like to know what it feels like. Would
1: you hold his hand while he was palming
0: Daniel's
2: head?
3: Yeah, of course. I want okay. it to be there he to see that. You can do both. Yeah.
2: And I'll, I'll hug his wide torso. <laughs> the, the,
0: the egotistical part of me is like, don't say anything too weird because you want to work with him someday. But the other part of me is like, It doesn't matter. He needs to hear what needs to
3: be. (laughs) They need to know what I have to say. Oh, I never thought about that. Disregard everything I've ever said.
0: Think of, is there a, there there is no bad Adam Driver rule. The amount of times he reemerges on TikTok with the delivery of one line from a scene without any context. There's a scene from Girls that he's in where it's a breakup scene. And he, after the breakup, he takes a bite of soup and he just does this very forceful like hand gesture and says, good soup. And it has been dominating TikTok as a trend for months. Just you or you know. the
3: I just had sex and I'm going to eat nachos. Ah, driver. This is driver
0: cast. Should have worn my Adam Driver shirt. I'm so sorry. No one can see me. I could have lied and said I was
3: wearing I it. I do think about him every day. This is
1: such an oceanic topic. We'll come back. Weirdly, I think people think of acting as one thing, but it, it's actually so important from a storytelling perspective And actors are such storytellers Such co-storytellers in the movie You know, one of the great debates about acting I don't know how to explain it Because there are are so many different ways to train to be an actor and so many different schools People may not know this if they're not actors But there is the Stanislavski method Which a lot of acting is based on Stanislavski was a very famous 19th century Russian teacher Who really talked about, you know Research the role Come up with the circumstances What were you doing right before you walked on stage He was a theater director But Stanislavski that sort of way of approaching acting really became the basis of 20th century acting. There, you know, is method acting. I dislike it because I think now it's become a bit of a punchline and hot take. I actually tend to side with method actors. I know a lot of people don't, but uh, one of the most famous method actors who unfortunately has said he's retired, I hope that's not true, is Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis embodies method acting, which is essentially that you have to believe you're the character you're playing. And when Daniel Day-Lewis, everyone said this from Steven Spielberg to to Paul Thomas Anderson, they never really knew Daniel D. Lewis when they were shooting the movie because when he was playing Lincoln he just would respond to you as Lincoln when he was playing Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, he would just respond to you, even though he wouldn't take it so far as to like throttle you by the neck but his sense of humor and the way he'd respond to you, and then there's sort of the British form of acting, which ironically Daniel D. Lewis is also, I mean he's but he's Irish I believe, isn't? He's British I think.
0: I don't even know what he sounds like.
1: But ironically, the British <laughs> form of acting is very technical Which allows British actors I think to have Much longer careers Than method actors Usually like Daniel Day-Lewis retired He couldn't do it anymore Marlon Brando Famously after Apocalypse Now Said that's it I'm never doing another Performance like that again Because I drive myself crazy Whereas British actors Can walk on the set You know Be it Helen Mirren Be it Anthony Hopkins Be it Brian Cox Be it Judy Dench all of these British actors who are acting, Michael Caine, who act into their eighties and their nineties, they leave it. You know, when they walk off set, they're done, and they come in, they put their full beard, their technical acting. I love all kinds of actors, but I do tend to think that the best performances are the ones where you have to believe. To me, it's analogous to writing. I have to laugh if I want something to be funny, I have to be scared if I want something to be scary in my script. I've done some acting, I actually was an actor as a, in theater, and the, my best performances were where I would believe what I was doing. Now, You always have to be careful because, of course, someone will be like, so do you have to really murder someone to be a murderer? No. But roles famously have wrecked actors. Heath Ledger was supposedly Jack Nicholson told him, don't do the Joker role the way you're going to do it. You're not going to come out of it well. And he didn't take his advice. There are roles you have to be very, very careful about. I've heard actors say they weren't able to shake a role for weeks and weeks and weeks. But I do want to go on the record as saying I do believe you have to believe what you're doing. I don't think you can phone it in. People do, but I personally don't think the most inspiring performances to me. I think you have to believe what's going on is happening.
2: I think it's fine as long as you're not talking about people playing the joker. I mean, this is nobody's ever done this, but let's say you're method acting and you maybe send your uh castmates like used condoms. That's maybe you being a, a a criminal did someone do that yep oh yeah mr jared leto dead for the suicide squad the david ayer one i think there's like limits to that idea but it sounds like dave lewis was always very respectful in that regard he wasn't like a monster he was like easy to work with in that sense
1: well except not a lot of people know this but in there will be blood it was not originally paul dano in that role they've all been very respectful not to name who it was i don't know if anyone knows who originally was supposed to play sunday but basically whoever that actor was day lewis just lit into him day after day after day but like you said, Connor, I mean, Day-Lewis, it was known. He, I think he said, this is how it's going to be. And the actor just couldn't deal with it. And Anderson could see this. This isn't working. And so he got Paul Dano, who is much more able to go. I know what Daniel Day-Lewis is doing. But no, I, I've heard the same. My favorite Day-Lewis story is such a minor one. But David Strathairn, who's not a method actor, was doing a rehearsal for Lincoln. And he was in sneakers. <laughs> and supposedly, Daniel Day-Lewis was in the Oval Office. And he said, Secretary of State. I'm appalled by your footwear. And, <laughs> <laughs> and straight down looked, and he was like, really, you're going you're gonna to give me grief about my shoes? And Day-Lewis was totally in Lincoln, was like, I don't know what that footwear is about, but it's really assaulting my eyes.
3: I think that method acting can be really great. I think that sometimes it's really dangerous. I also think that some people use it as an excuse to be an ass because I definitely have seen people who are like I'm a method actor and I'm like yeah but you aren't because I saw you doing that over there and then you just started being mean and then you blame it on being a method actor like mm -hmm. I also think that with every role at least in my experience for me I can't be like okay this is the character I'm this person I have to be like okay here are aspects of this person I can do this way of speaking I can do this way of walking I can do this way of carrying myself just by like thinking and like practicing an accent but the inside part like the brainy part I still have to have some of me in it because no matter what it's always gonna be a bit of you so my way has always been I know these aspects I'm gonna take these four things that like I know and I relate to and I'm gonna use them and I'm going to like hyper focus on them. So it's this character, but it's also me. And I'm gonna use myself and my experiences in that. And I'm not gonna torture myself because I think sometimes with method acting, like you just are literally torturing yourself. And I think that can be like very unhealthy for you. But it does it some really good performances come out of it so like you can't knock it at all it's amazing but for me couldn't do it i think going in as yourself And just taking these parts of what makes someone else someone else and using them is also really great. And I have seen a lot of actors do like incredible performances doing that. So I also really like that.
0: I think I'm in the same ballpark as Lisey. I think Thank you, Daniel. Most of the stories that come out of method acting are like these negative things from set that make it sound like I feel like you don't get stories of like so-and-so was in character and he was so lovely to everyone. It's always like, so-and-so mailed me a dead animal. But you do. You got to be careful about that. Everyone said acting with Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln was like amazing. Oh, totally. But I mean, the stuff that sort of make headlines, it seems to be predominantly negative experiences people have had in method acting thing. But I think also the method acting environment is is fairly small. Like It's a pretty small, eclectic group of, of actors. And I think there's, there's different sides of the thing. You have someone like, day lewis whose performances seem to dictate this need for him internally to do it this way but you have performances like the other mentioned actor who i don't know what's going on i don't see the performance there i see this caricature of a human that thinks this is how you do things and i guess it's just i i think the divide when creating art and collaboration art i still need to divide between like my personal reality and the art i'm creating and to live in it seems almost abusive to me like not being able to disconnect, because I struggle with that. I obsess over the things that I'm working on in ways that are maybe unhealthy sometimes. So I think as an actor, method seems like this thing that will wreak havoc on you. And so it seems I want to be against it because it seems to be this dangerous. Like if Daniel Day-Lewis is retiring because it's so taxing, we've gotten these incredible things from him, these performances that are unbelievable and will be studied for generations. But it also seems like, does that man get a weekend when he's shooting for three months? Does he ever get to exist outside of his head? Cause that sounds miserable and maybe it's not maybe for him or other method actors, it works. But to me, I guess from like a directing standpoint, it seems like to have an actor that is doing that to themselves would make me uncomfortable. Like how can I find a collaboration to direct them in a capacity that doesn't require that type of thing? I'm not an actor, so I can't discredit that if that's the method that lets you give the performance that you feel the most empowered by, I think that rules again, with the caveat that you're not a monster. But for me, I guess the technical thing, being able to turn off sounds like a nice thing to have because the rest sound, it worries me, I guess.
2: It, it almost seems like method acting is like anti-collaborative in a sense because you're kind of shutting people out of your process as opposed to if somebody's able to shut it off in between takes, you can sort of, I mean, I guess it depends on how they are. But if they're so totally within that character, then you can't really talk about that character because you're talking about them.
0: I've seen interviews with P.T. Anderson that I'd be curious to hear about, having worked with Daniel Day-Lewis twice, how you direct someone in the method mindset, what the direction conversation is like, because you're not directing a person to get the performance. You are inherently directing... The human, the embodiment of the human, which sounds like a really interesting, maybe within that collaboration, there's something interesting because you're talking to them directly if, if that's how they're. Giving their performance
1: De Lewis called Spielberg skipper And Spielberg would just refer to him as Lincoln He'd just treat him as Ape Lincoln And that's the way that I do it I don't, when I direct, I don't actually call my actors By their off-camera names I call them by the names they're playing in the movie And by the way, I'm not, that, that totally different I'm making different comments there But Aaliyah Kazan famously cracked the code of Brando Which no one ever could do Brando would explode at most of his directors And Kazan realized that Brando had really complicated dad issues So he would go to Brando and he would just say he'd treat him like a brother. And he'd say, look, you're like an older brother here, Marlon. I don't know how to approach this scene. Do you have any ideas? And Brando always wanted to be a brother. And he'd throw his arms around Kazan. He'd be like, well, why don't we try that? I'll do this for you. Let me try this. I'll get... And, and, and Kazan would be like, Marlon. And good directors, you can't direct every actor the same. It's just impossible. You have to learn how to get the best out of each actor and how what they're going to respond to. And then you just have to direct each actor to get the best out of them based on on how they, they
4: need to be. But I remember those two stories. I just thought of Jack- Nicholson for some reason. And I thought of uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Jack was method for a long time. And you know, and one flew the cuckoo's nest, I think in some odd way that his character, he's actually being himself, you know. What if he got thrown into a mental institution? He has to be around these people that have mental disabilities and it's just his reaction and then trying to live in the environment and just being himself. I don't know if that's weird or not, but when I think of that movie, I think of that like, damn, it's Jack Nicholson in the mental hospital, and this is probably how he would react.
1: No, to, no and, and to Lisey's point and your point, Edwin, and Daniel's point, and you know, I was talking about Hackman, I, I think it is really important. I think, Lisey, you, you, you said something I, I absolutely agree with, which is there's no way to erase who you are, and you can only understand characters from your point of reference, and I think that Hackman is great because he's starting with Hackman as a base. When your method, I I sometimes feel maybe there's a misunderstanding of what method is. When your method, you're interacting with everybody based on your character and that work, talking to people. This is my sister. This is my dad. This is my boss. You develop these relationships and suddenly you get these performances and moments because you're working 24 hours a day. You're working 24 hours a day on how you're interacting with other people, how you understand them, how you're seeing them. And I feel like you feel that in the performance. And you get these little nuances and little subtleties you can't get when you turn it off because most of the day is not being in character. If you've ever been on the set, (laughs) most of the day is not being in character. And I think that those actors that do that... You you know. I don't know. I, it's it's hard for me to. It's like writing. When I write for the final two weeks of a script, I can't talk to anybody. I get up, I write, I cry, I go cry, I go to bed. I you got to live and breathe. And Kurosawa would do the same. I just don't know how else you elevate something to the greatest of the great. But I don't. I I know that it takes its toll. I know it takes its toll.
2: Let voice actors do voice acting again. There's something to go out on. Stop hiring celebrities. <laughs> just to do voice actors.
3: Stop letting Manuel Miranda make musicals. Please. I need I need at least like a scare warning whenever he comes up <laughs> because I
1: never know he's coming. Let's uh, give you the final word on this topic. What's something you want to impart to people to think about in terms of acting?
3: It's a very fun and wonderful thing to do. It is also very emotionally taxing no matter what the role is. And I think that... People will be easy to harp on a bad performance when in reality, like, sometimes no one can do better than that. Sometimes a bad performance is going to be a bad performance no matter who it is. And also, like, it's fun to like things. It is a good thing to like things and just enjoy a performance. Um, and actors aren't gods. Please.
2: give have any, one small piece of advice for someone starting? Not on a career level.
3: Oh, thank God. I started like 10 years ago. Be yourself. It's really scary to have rejection shoved in your face every day. The best thing that you can do is be nice to yourself, be kind to yourself, and just remember that it's fun. It's a silly, fun, made-up career. It just is something to do that will bring you joy. And if it doesn't bring you joy, don't do it. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. So, moving on to pop culture and final thoughts. Had a,
4: had a pretty long day yesterday. I saw Batman, the Phantasm, for the second time in over eight, nine years. It's okay. <laughs> so it, was, it, was, it was a good Batman movie, but, was, you know, it gave like a seven out of ten. I ended up staying at the New Bev again and watch a uh, Fred Williamson a western we call boss last name, Bub blank. You just say boss N-word. I will say boss N is like an anti-blazing saddles. Craig Williams is a bad mother... Beep. And um, I saw, I saw a Clockwork Orange. I brained it on 35. Sorry, Craig. I, can't, I couldn't wait till December. So, ended up watching it. Still one of the greatest movies ever made. I finally got the ending of that movie now. And I like how Kubrick foreshadows all his movies in Clockwork for some reason. I don't know why.
1: Oh, yeah. Clockwork is for sure the hinge. All the movies after Clockwork sort of stem from Clockwork, for sure.
4: I saw The Dune.
0: (laughs) I went to see The Dune on IMAX. I liked The Dune. (laughs) Dune Dune's dope. And I also saw Spencer, which I'll let uh, Lisa talk about in a minute. Spencer, I loved also. Really ties into, in terms of people getting completely lost in performance, I think Christian Stewart and Spencer. It'll become an Oscar talk, I have no doubt, but really just someone that you forget is an actor on screen during that. I was worried it would feel like an an affectation or a imitation and it never remotely felt like that. But in something interesting that's happening following Dune, a lot of the movie was shot in the IMAX ratio, not IMAX ratio on IMAX cameras to take advantage of the unique screen ratio of proper IMAXs. And I saw that Disney announced today that a bunch of the Marvel movies are being remastered for Disney plus featuring some of their IMAX expanded ratios. And I think that concept's really interesting that we're, there's a way a movie is created and cut. If you see a Dune in a standard theater or on HBO Max, it is in its... Honestly, not sure which ethnic ratio it's in normally. But there are these multiple versions of things and they're different experiences. And I think it's very interesting that we're now getting to sort of... If a director's intention, like with Marvel, was to have these huge... Because I haven't seen it yet, but I know The Eternals has some 4 by 3 moments of full IMAX screen... That if the director's intention was to utilize that, the difference that that makes that cannot be replicated is a very interesting thought experiment to that type of stuff. Because I thought Dune was like this insanely immersive, I mean, literally overwhelming because you cannot take in the whole picture without looking up and down during the moments of full screen that sort of envelop you in the world and it feels like you're in it. And I'm kind of curious to see if that becomes a thing, if home video, it would be great if home video can replicate if that experience can be offered to us. I know that Zack Snyder's Justice League was offered in 4x3, which confused a lot of people why they're black bars on the left and right of my TV, but gave his vision through and through what he wanted. He was able to finally have it showcased in the way he wanted it. And I think sort of in this world of, of streaming and this sort of conversation around like preservation of film and different mediums of art in that regard, I think having these as intended ratios are really important. And so stuff like, like, I remember years ago, Netflix put There Will Be Blood Up in the wrong aspect ratio. It was cropped. And no one understood why I was complaining. My friends were like, it looks the same. And I was like, no, it's like my throwback. Was I was like, hey, if you cropped the Mona Lisa, people would notice. And they're all like, you sound like an idiot. You sound like an absolute, which is fair. I probably sounded like an,
2: an A-hole. I think they fixed it. But I think Disney Plus, when they put up The Simpsons, they had it cropped in a way where it would like actually cut out jokes and gags.
0: Yeah, they, they zoom it because modern audiences don't. The bars are alarming. But I thought that was really interesting. I think that the concept around this type of stuff, you know, if you don't have an, if you don't have a proper IMAX in your city, you can never see Dune properly. And that's very interesting as a concept to me, that there's this thing that exists in a format and now it is out of IMAX. Your chance is gone. And I think that's, Bizarre to me.
2: So I watched several new movies by exciting on tour directors in theaters this last week or so. And I didn't really care for any of them that much. So I'm going to recommend people go watch Jenny Nicholson on YouTube. She does some great video essays. She did one on the My Little Pony fandom bronies and the last BronyCon con that made me cry.
0: She did an incredible, like two hour breakdown of Dear Evan Hansen
2: too. Oh my God. Go check her out and check me out online at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. My
1: grandmother, Geraldine Brown turns 94 today. I love you, Gigi. I credit my grandmother probably with forcing me to have a sense of humor. I didn't really have a sense of humor. I was a spoiled little dramatic kid. And I remember my grandmother just was having none of it in the best Catholic tradition. So she would tell me, like, if I fell asleep throwing a fit, she was like, well, the moment you fell asleep, Craig, we all went out and got ice cream. And then we all went roller skating. And then I took everybody to a movie, but you were just so you know, dramatic and you had to go into your room. I, you missed it all. And I'd be like, what? And then she'd be like, you're an idiot for believing me. That was my grandmother. And my favorite thing when I got older was she, one day, she, she said, Craig, your mom and dad never should have gotten married. And I was like, "Yeah, but if they never gotten married, you wouldn't have Heather and I." And she was like, "Yeah, but your mom would have married someone else. Maybe he would have been a millionaire, and maybe my grandkids would be millionaires, and I'd have more money." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, boom, snap, chee chee." My sister and I—I I can't do her delivery, but we would just bust up. Suffice it to say, most of the spouses that marry into my family can't stand my grandmother. She gave my reactionary LAPD uncle-in-law. She would give him a stuffed pig every year for his birthday, and he would uh, <laughs> he would get furious, and then he eventually stopped coming to family dinners and everything. And then she just nailed <laughs> the stuffed pig stone. I love her. That's my grandmother, so so I love you, Gigi. And then uh, I'm listening to this. I'm doing this audio book, CIA Legacy of Ashes by Tim uh, Weiner, all about the history of the CIA from its inception, just after World War II, to the, uh, basically Afghanistan, Iraq, and I don't want to sound pie in the sky. And I'm still formulating this. I highly recommend it. I'm sure it's a very biased book. I'm sure there's a lot more to the story. Um, I know there's always a thousand sides to every story. But I would say that the more you listen to all of our botched covert operations, whether it was Vietnam or Laos or Guatemala or Honduras or what we tried to do in the 70s in Africa, You begin to understand more and more the fury and rage and anger that Americans are seemingly unaware that they lecture about democracy and the rule of law and autonomy for countries when it comes to bad actors they don't like, but then don't acknowledge what they've done. And I just wonder, the thesis of the book, which is fascinating, is that we always should have been more focused on intelligence gathering and then looking at it objectively before we made active decisions about policy and not to get into politic wonkishness. But that seems totally reasonable to me that our energy and money should go into objective intelligence analysis and then form policy from there rather than trying to sort of shoehorn intelligence to fit the policy we want. And I just hope, because I do believe in this country and I do believe in government, I just would love to see maybe that we do that going forward, but Legacy of Ashes, it's fascinating.
3: I don't believe that this country exists. Actually, I've never seen proof. Oh my God. So my best friend, you may know him, Daniel Ott, took me as a surprise to a screening of Spencer last night with a Q and A with none other than the love of my life, Kristen Stewart. And it was amazing. It was so good. And I literally like went home feeling disappointed in myself like the movie was so good I felt like a failure I loved every second of it and she is so well spoken and funny and is a very very talented person that was amazing and I get to go get a tattoo in three hours so that's that is it there a case a tattoo oh my god could you imagine no I could never <laughs> do that to myself what if something happens to her you Know, then I just have a reminder of her forever. And Lisey,
1: let's uh, because you're an actor, like we were talking about at the beginning, where can people check you out and follow you?
3: I have my Instagram, it's at Lisey Metcalf, L I S E E M E T C A L F. But I also have a TikTok, which is always embarrassing to plug at Local Mistake spelled the correct way
1: well guys let's give it up for lisey thank you thank you well thank you lisey very very much and thank you everybody here next week secret movie club podcast 81 will be about night of the hunter and all that jazz and as connor was saying ahead of recording and I, i think he's absolutely right we're just gonna talk about those two movies numerous people online have been commenting like I love both these movies, but why are they in a double feature together? Totally fair. Uh, It's Thanksgiving. Those are just two movies that I'm super grateful exist. Two American, unique American classics. So we will be talking about that next week, and you can see them this Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater on 35mm. As always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. Check out everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. We've announced now everything through December 24th, and you can also go to Eventbrite to get tickets. And that's it. Thank you, guys. Thanks Thank you, Lisey, for being part of our podcast today. Have a great week, guys. Take care. Uh, Bye. Bye.
2: See, I'm looking at Kristen Zuid's personal life. She suffers from equinophobia, the fear of horses.
3: Oh, interesting. I love that for her. She's (laughs) beautiful. So, I actually didn't ride a horse in Charlie's Angels? She was fully riding a horse in Charlie's Angels. Remember, she has the crop. Did she not the joke. a joke? She's all
2: CGI, maybe. I go back and watch that movie, and it's and she's just—it's not a real horse. She just has one of those toys, like the <laughs> stick with the horse head on it. And it's oh, like yeah. how, do, how do we not notice this?